on the Victoria Embankment in London stands a monument uh, 21 metres high, huge stone obelisk. It's known as Cleopatra's Needle. It weighs 224 tonnes. It was given um, to commemorate the, uh, Nelson's victory um, at the Nile in 1901, or sorry, 1801. And it was eventually brought to London in 1878 and erected there. And under it, there is a, what we might call a time capsule. And in that time capsule are all sorts of items. It actually sounds more like a survival kit than a time capsule. There are 12, uh, sorry, there are, there are a box of hairpins, uh, a box of cigars, a pipe, a set of imperial weights. There is a, a selection of newspapers from the day. Uh, there's a baby's bottle. There are children's toys. There's a razor. There's a hydraulic jack. Uh, there are 12 photographs of the most beautiful woman in England at that time. There is a, an almanac that sets out the tides and the times and the seasons and, and all sorts of useful information. There's a Bible. And then there is a verse from the Bible that has been translated into 215 different languages. And amongst all the things that they thought to put into this time capsule, they said that they would put this verse of the Bible in. And they had it translated into all these languages because they evidently felt it was vital that whoever was going to open this time capsule from whatever part of the world they came from, they mightn't be able to read the newspapers. They might have very different ideas of beauty. They may not need the hairpins or the razor. But they would need to know this. And it's our verse this morning as we think in our communion series on the simple two words, He gave we come to perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. There's our phrase. This verse has been a summary of the gospel for many, and it has fired missionary endeavor. I was reading about uh, some missionaries. There was a man called uh, Fred Arnott who went to Africa. Um, he, he heard David Livingstone, the great missionary explorer, speaking when, he was, when uh, Fred Arnott was six. And he decided, I'm going to go. I, he vowed that he would go to Africa as a missionary. And uh, there was one time later on when he was a young fellow, he was lying asleep uh, at night, um, when he was, I think he was age 10, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and he was repeating over and over to himself, John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he said later on in life, This was my first and chief message. This is what I'm about. This is what I want people to know. I came across the story of another missionary, a man called Edgerton Young, who went to the North American Indians. And uh, he said, I read aloud those sublime words, for God so loved the world. 
and they listened to them, uh, to these truths for the next four hours. He preached for four hours to the Indians and they, they listened, the North American Indians, with rapt attention, he said, to the sublime truths of that verse. But it's not just a verse for the lost, it's a verse for the believer. Martin Luther, as he was coming to the end of his life, was plagued with a severe headaches and he was recommended a particular type of medication, um, an expensive medication. And he said, well, no, I don't need that. He said, my best prescription for head and heart is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He said, it is the Bible in itself. If you want the message of the Bible summed up in a single verse, here it is. And we want to think of it this morning, and the outline that I'm using this morning is an outline that it sums up the verse so perfectly. It's not mine. I heard another preacher use it, but it sums up the verse so perfectly that all there is is to, to take the structure and to, to hang our thoughts on it. Four things. God loves the worst. God loves the worst. For God so loved the world. And in each of these points, there's four points. But in those, these four points, there's really two things for us to see. Because there are these four phrases that each of two parts. For God so loved the world. And the two things for us to see here are the, the, the astonishing nature of God's love. For God so loved the world. I was reading a book um, a while ago uh, about, and it, it was written by uh, a scholar who's not a Christian, and he was talking about how the ancient world perceived Christianity, and he said, the simple phrase, for God so loved the world, would have puzzled an educated pagan. The educated Greek would have wondered, what on earth are you talking about? Why would God be interested in the world. God is high and lofty. What would he be interested in in this tiny little planet? Why would they pay attention to mortals? The gods weren't particularly interested in what the mortals were doing. The gods were interested in what they were doing. But the educated Greek, that's what maybe the, the, the Greek, the ordinary Greek who was interested in his mythology would have thought, but the, the educated Greek would have said, well, look, the world is a physical thing, and God is a spirit. He's not interested in matter. This is what we're trying to get rid of. They were trying to escape the body and become pure mind or spirit. That was their thing. And to read that God so loved the world, it sounded like madness. And yet that's what the Savior says. It's true. And yet Christianity has so permeated our culture that we, we go, of course, it makes sense. God, why wouldn't God love the world? But no, it's a, it's a groundbreaking, earth-shaking truth. And Charles Spurgeon had a lovely phrase. He said, he said about that little word, so it's the littlest word, but it captures the greatest truth. For God so loved the world. He said it is like the Amazon River, the mighty Amazon River, flowing down to water a single daisy. And when you remember that a daisy is a weed, 
Spurgeon gets it exactly right. The mighty Amazon River pouring all its resources to see a weed flourish. You see, not only do we see the, the majestic nature of God's love, but we see in this as well the world, the object of His love. For God so loved the world. And it's not the, whenever John talks about the world, it's not so much the bigness of the world that he's thinking about, it's the badness of the world. It's not so much the vastness of the world, but the vileness of the world. We read later on in John 15, where Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. The world is in opposition to God, as far as John is concerned, as far as Jesus is concerned. The world is in rebellion against God. And that's what makes this truth all the more astonishing as we think about the God who gives. See the nature of his generosity. It is, it is colossal and it is directed towards people who are naturally his enemies. There's nothing worthy about the world. There is nothing the world has done to deserve God's love. Our biggest problem is not that there's a war in Ukraine. Our biggest problem is not COVID and our biggest problem isn't climate change. Our biggest problem isn't corruption in politics or in huge multinational corporations. Our biggest problem is that we are sinners. And, and we read at the very end of this section that God exposes sin. He exposes us. He exposes us to ourselves. And we see as he peels back the layers of our soul, like the layers of an onion, we see that we're more wicked than we ever realized. And that phrase that I used in our opening prayer was one I came across this morning in my own, in my own quiet time, that the, God sees more pollution in our best acts than we see in our most sinful acts. We're horrified at our most sinful acts. If we could see with the eyes of God, we would look at our best acts and go, what a terrible stain there lies in them. The worst. That's who we are. And if we could see ourselves as God sees us, we would be shocked and horrified. And that's what makes this verse so incredible and makes God's love so incredible. For God so loved the world. You might even say, for God so loved the worst. That's how we could say it. And we need to hear that afresh so that we can be amazed afresh at God's great love. And this morning, if you haven't yet come and put your trust in Jesus Christ, what is it you need to do to be the recipient of this great love? Well, it needs an admission. I am the worst. I am one of these worst people. I am a sinner. I am guilty before God. You see, if we think we're okay, then we're not going to be in a place to receive the love of God. It's a terrible irony. If we think that we're somewhat lovely, we will not find ourselves loved. But if we grasp that we are utterly unlovely in God's sight, oh, now we are in a position 
to relish the great love that God pours out on us. God loves the worst. What an amazing truth. And as we come to the Lord's table today, you might feel unworthy. You might feel amongst the worst. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can take that accusation that Satan throws at you and say, yes, that's right, I am amongst the worst. But my God loves the worst. Secondly, God gives the best. God gives the best. How do we know that God loves the world? It's not just that he's a, a, a God of love and, and that's it. And again, the, again the, the different religions of the world would, would question that statement. Um, Islam doesn't portray Allah as being a God of, of love. He's a God who's, who's so vast and so up there and so different. He is distant and remote. But the Bible is at great pains to paint for us a God who is loving. I think one of the names that uh, Islam has for Allah is that he is loving. One of the descriptions, one. But we are told over and over and over and over and over again. And then we see his love in what he does. How do we know he loves us? He gives the best. For God so loved the world. How do we know? That he gave his one and only son. The father has only one son. And he gives him. We often think of the gospel in terms of what Jesus gives. He gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We think of it in those terms. But we must also remember that it is not simply the Son giving. It is the Father giving the Son who gives. And then the Father and the Son gives the Spirit to us. Uh, the Father is first and foremost a giving Father. And the giving of the Son is the proof of the Father's love. And we need to see it because we could think very, very wrongly that somehow God the Father is the angry judge of all the earth and he's the harsh, severe one. And God the Son is the loving one. And God the Son says, No, Father, don't punish them. Punish me instead. And it's the Son who makes the Father loving. No! A thousand times no. What a terrible blasphemy to think of the Father in that way. For God so loved the world that he, the Father, gave his one and only Son. It's because he loves that he gives the Son. It's not that the Son makes him loving. I've used this quote before, but I, I want to use it again. The Son was uniquely lovable and the Father uniquely affectionate. God could not have made a greater sacrifice. His love is astonishing precisely at this point. He put the world before his Son. The statement, 
God gave the world for His Son would evoke no wonder. Perfectly understandable. We'd all do that. We'd we'd give up the world to save one of our children. We would. But the statement, God gave His Son for the world, borders on the incredible. God gave His Son for the world. And it, it, it is astonishing because He could have created a new world. He could have just scrubbed everything and started again and said, you're all damned and we will make a new world with nobody who sins that don't need redeemed. He gave his son. He gave his son. Came across a a, a touching illustration. It was about a a man who, it was after, I think, the, the First World War, maybe, no, maybe the Second World War. It was after the Second World War and he was, walking with his son down a street in New York. And there was a thing that the Americans did in World War II where if you had lost a son in the war, you were allowed to put a star in your window. And the little boy was walking with his father and he was saying, Daddy, they have a star in their window. They lost a, a son. And there's a, there's a house with two stars in the window. They've lost two sons. And Daddy, there, there's a house with, with no stars in the window. They, they haven't lost anybody yet. And then as they came walking down the street, there was, a, there was a gap in the houses and as they saw through to the night sky, they saw the evening star bright against the night sky. And the little boy said, Daddy, Daddy, God has a star in his window too. He must have lost a son. His father said, Son, indeed he did. Indeed he did. He gave his son. God gives the best. The Father only has one Son, and He loved Him with an infinite love, and He doesn't hold Him back, and He gives Him. He gives Him. He gives Him even though it was you and me who owed. We owed. We should have been giving, but the Father gives. And He gives sacrificially. He had one Son, and He gave Him. And where did he give him to? He didn't just give him to us as there you go, you have him. He gave him to the cross, to death on a cross, to bear the wrath of our, that our sins deserve, to bear our sins in all their filth, to bear the wrath that we deserved. He gave him to that. And oh, he gives the best. God gives the best. And there may be times in our lives where we are tempted to question whether God loves us or not. We look at the circumstances that He has given to us and we think, well, God, you mustn't love me, but we mustn't do that. And we'll see more of this this evening. That in giving us His Son, that changes everything. That is the test of His love for us. And so, as we're coming to the Lord's table today, see how as you're receiving the bread and wine, receive them as it were from the hand of the Father. Not the hands of Robert and myself, but from the hand of the Father. The Father says, I love you. Here's my Son. Here is my Son. And perhaps this morning, some, uh, some watching, some 
uh, of the young people, some who may be watching later. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not a Christian yet, and I'll leave that till I'm later. What a terrible thing it is to, to, to have been offered the greatest gift in the world and to say, no, no, I don't want it now. If you would just hold on to it for me until I want it later. Imagine children, if we said that to our mums or our dads when they had spent a huge amount of money to give us the best present ever, and we said, no, not now. I'll open it in a few years' time. What a, what a, a terrible thing to do. And yet we can do that with the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives the best. And we need to come, if you haven't yet come and put your trust in Him, if you haven't yet taken that gift from God, come and say, I, I want this present that you're giving. God gives the best. Thirdly, God asks the least. God asks the least. How do we receive this gift? That whoever believes in Him. And again, there are two, two words here to catch our attention. There's a word that, that broadens everything. And there's a word that narrows everything down. The word that broadens everything is whoever. Whoever. It's a word that says anybody can come. You see, the, the Jews thought the Messiah was only for them. But Jesus blows it wide open and says, whoever, whoever, that whoever believes in him should not perish. And then there's the narrowing word. You see that, that word whoever says to us, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter our past, it doesn't matter our track record, it doesn't matter the things that we're guilty of, we can come to him. He, there is more mercy in him than there is sin in us. And there is more sin in us than we ever could realize, but there is more mercy in him than we could ever imagine. Whoever, doesn't matter what you've done. Whoever. There's a widening. But then there's a narrowing. It's for anybody, but it's not for everybody. Salvation is not applied automatically to everyone. And nor is it earned. Something is to be done, but not done in the way that we usually think of doing things, where we are to earn God's favor by doing this religious act or by being kind to, to people around us. That's not it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, that's what we do. And belief is coming to God with empty hands, holding out our hands and saying, please, please put your gift of forgiveness and salvation by your son into my hands. That's what it is, but it's so simple. That's all he asks. He's paid the priceless price so that the gift can be held out to us at no cost. And as you come to the Lord's table this morning, the Father holds out to his Son, and by his Son he holds out to you forgiveness and eternal life. And he gives. And what do we do? We receive. We receive. And you see, this word believes, we've got to be clear on it because it's so vital. On it, everything hinges. It does not mean that we believe bare facts. Some people say, 
Well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he existed. That's what they mean. They believe that he went to the cross and that he died and that he rose again. They might even believe that he's God. And they believe. They said, does not everyone believe in Jesus? Well, yes, in a sense. A lot of people do believe in Jesus in that way, but that doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. Because Satan believes in Jesus in that way. The devil believes that Jesus exists. The devil believes Jesus died on the cross. The devil believes Jesus rose from the dead. The devil believes that Jesus is the Son of God and he's going to be damned forever. So clearly there must be something more to this believing. And what is it? It's not simply knowing and accepting that these things are true. It is to entrust our entire weight to them. In the previous verse, Verses verse 14, we have an illustration of this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Back in the book of Exodus, there's an incident where poisonous snakes were biting the people and they were dying. And Moses, God told Moses, make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole. And as people looked to that, they will be healed. They, were to look, they weren't just to see it. They were to hear what God said and they were to look at it. And that's what happens at the cross. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. He is going to be the one who, who bears away our sins. And as we look to Him and trust that that's what He's doing for me, He has become me, as it were, He has become the sinner so that I can become the son. Do I believe it? Have I asked him to do it for me? And I, the, the missionary John G. Patton uh, was a missionary in the South Sea Islands and he was translating the Bible into, uh, into the, the local language and he was really struggling to find a word that captures this idea of believe of faith. There wasn't one in the language. And he asked, he was sitting, trying to figure it out one day, over and over again, praying for, for insight. And as he was sitting in a chair at his desk, um, a lady came in and he said she, she was a, an intelligent native woman. And I asked her, what am I doing now? And she said, Missy, missionary, that's what they call him, Missy, you're sitting down. Well, what's the word for that? Koikeana, she said. Koikeana. And then Patton says, Then I drew up my feet from the floor, and I rested them in the bar under the chair, and I leant back in the chair in a posture of complete relaxation. And I said, What am I doing now? And she said, Missy, that's Fakar or Rongrongo. You are leaning wholly, Missy. You are leaning wholly on the chair. You have lifted yourself from every other support. That's it, Patton shouted. That's it, that's what I want. Leaning on Jesus and on no other support. That's what faith is. God says, come to my son. Leave off anything else. Just hang on to him. And when we hang on to him, what do we find? 
Well, we've seen that God loves the worst. He gives the best. He asks the least that we bring nothing. We only cling to His Son. God promises the most. God promises the most. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What a generous God. Oh, we deserve to perish. You know how it is. You go out to the the garage or the shed uh, and you, you lift something that's been sitting there for years and it's everything looks right. The shape of it's the same as it always was. The color of it is the same. And as you lift it, it crumples under your hand. It's perished. It's completely lost its life and vitality. And it's just a, a crumbling mess now. Well, that was our destiny. We would perish. We would have lost all of our life and vitality forever and ever. And we would have been doomed to an eternal perishing. That's what hell is. And hell is being spoken of here. The verse says that we would not perish. That's what we deserved. But the Son, rather, would perish for us so that instead we could have everlasting life. He promises the most. Now, to be honest, mercy, where we simply didn't perish, would have been an incredible blessing. We have rebelled against God, and if God had said, I will be merciful, and I will not punish you. That's it. You will die, but there will be no punishment. You think, wow, what mercy. That, that is incredible mercy. God said, I have punished my son, and there will be no punishment for you. But no, our God goes beyond that, because He is a God who gives. And He promises not simply mercy, but He displays grace. And He says, not only will I not punish you, but I will give you a life that lasts forever and ever in the greatest of places with the greatest of beings, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He promises the most. We get grace, undeserved kindness. We get way, way above mercy. We have a God who delights to give. I started with Edgerton Young, mentioned him, and I want to finish with him as he preached to the Indians for four hours on the, this verse. They listened with the most rapt attention while for four hours I talked to them of the truths of this glorious verse. When I had finished, every eye turned towards the principal chief. He rose and coming near me, delivered one of the most thrilling addresses I have ever heard. Years have passed away since that hour, and yet the memory of that tall, straight, impassioned Indian is as vivid as ever. Missionary, exclaimed the stately old chief, I have not for a long time believed in our religion. I hear God in the thunder, in the tempest and in the storm. I see his power in the lightning that shivers the tree. I see his goodness in giving us the moose, the reindeer, the beaver, and the bear. 
I see his loving kindness in sending us when the south winds blow the ducks and geese and when the snow and ice melt away our lakes and rivers are open again. I see how he fills them with fish. I've watched all this for years and I have felt that the great spirit so kind and watchful and loving could not be pleased by hearing the beating of the conjurer's drum or the shaking of the rattle of the medicine man. And so I have had no religion. But what you have just said fills my heart and satisfies its longings. I am so glad you have come with this wonderful story. The God who gives. The God who loves the worst, who gives the best, who asks the least, and who promises the most. Hold those in your head as you come to the Lord's table. Hold those in your head as you think about what the gospel is. Let's pray. Just as we remain in our seats, let's pray. Father in heaven, this verse is familiar territory to many of us. We've coloured it in as children. We've written it once we learned to write. We memorised it perhaps as the first verse we ever committed to memory. It's so simple and so basic. And, O oh Lord God, it is so astonishingly profound. We take for granted that you would love the world. We fancy ourselves as lovable. Lovable rogues, maybe, but lovable nonetheless. But, O oh Lord, we are a foul stench in your nostrils. We have failed in so many ways, and even our best acts are filthy rags in your sight. And, O oh Lord God, that you would love this world is incredible. And, O oh Lord God, that you would give your beloved Son for this world is beyond belief. And that you would hold out such a costly salvation to us. And that you would ask so little of us that we would just hang on to him. is so generous and that you would tolerate us when having named Jesus as our Savior we have fallen into sin again and again and again and again. You are generous and patient and we praise you for it and that you would promise something that we could never begin to comprehend that we would live forever and that we would enjoy you forever when we deserved hell and we should have been perishing for all eternity, that you didn't simply forgive us and leave it at that, but that you brought us into your family. Lord, we marvel at your kindness and your generosity and your goodness. And we pray that as we come to the Lord's table now, that we would have that sense of receiving all of this from your hand, from your hand into our hands, 
that as we take, we would sense you giving. And that in knowing you give this to us, we have our confidence that you will give all things. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as we bring our, our time at the table to a close, I want to turn our thoughts to one more verse. It's found in John chapter 1 and verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We've sat at the table. We've received Christ. We believe in his name. What does the, what does the Apostle John say that God gives? He gives the right to become children of God. Note two things from this. There's certainty. He gave the right. He gave it. We didn't take it. He gave the right. We didn't earn it. If we earned it, it wouldn't be certain because we could unearn it. We could fall out of deserving it. We could fall below the criteria, but no. He gave the right. We received Christ. We cling to Christ. What does God give? He gives the right to become children of God. And there's a, there's a completedness to that action. He gives the right. The tense is that it's given and it, it stays given. It's a God-given right. He gave it. It's not given by a person who changes, but it's given by a God who does not. It's certain. So he gives, speaks to us of a generosity, but it speaks to us too of a certainty. But then look at what is given here. There's certainty, but there's also status. The right to become children of God. This is something that just boggles John's mind. He's going to say in his first letter, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, he says. What a privilege. What a privilege as you sit at the Lord's table, as you have taken part. He has given you. He has given you the bread and the wine. He has given you his son. He has given you this status. And what does it speak of? It speaks of belonging. In the most close and personal way. Children to a father. It speaks of care. And love and provision. He's given you the right to become children of God. As you took part today, and as you look at the week ahead, God says, remember this. I have given you my son, and I have given you the right to be my child. I will care, and I will provide. 
And this status speaks too of familiarity. We're not servants. The right to become servants. Well, wow, that would have been a privilege to be a servant of God. And it is our privilege. But he doesn't call us servants. He calls us children. Belonging and care and familiarity. But there's a big idea still in that word, children of God. Resemblance. We become like our Father. He gave us that right that we, bags of dust that we are, bundles of mud, would not only live forever but resemble our Heavenly Father. He gave. That's our theme. And how, how does he give? With an abundant generosity that we can hardly begin to take in. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen.